Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Matt Renner, a member of the World Business Academy's Board of Directors, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brutico, the Academy's President and Founder. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. We're recording this show on June 18th, 2018. On this show, we'll check in on key economic indicators and project the impacts of various policies of the Trump administration, including the tax cuts and tariffs on imported goods. A key issue we will address is the ongoing crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border, where children are being separated from their parents and held in detention facilities with little transparency. How will this impact the economy? Ronaldo, where do you want to start? Well, uh, thanks, Matt, and, and hi to everyone. And I guess um, I guess where I want to start is uh, this is going to be a full show. We've got a lot to talk about that's really substantively important. Uh, we brought up the yield curve last time. I got to give people an update on that and remind them what the yield curve is and why it's signaling such a negative direction. We've got to talk about the impact of the tax cuts because at least half the country now believes, and I think that number is going to grow, that the tax cuts were for the rich and don't benefit them. Amongst independents, 54 to, I think it's 43% believe that uh, it's a bad idea. So it's not going to help at the, at the, at the polling place in November. Um, there's a funny one, you know, why aren't more men working was an article in the, in the New York times and ladies, I want you to know, I didn't do that humorous. There's actually an interest. Statistically way more women are. And, um, what's going on that's not being counted in the unemployment rate. Why are wages not going up as they would have been predicted? Where are those thousands and thousands and thousands of coal mining jobs that, Trump promised the, the voters in West Virginia and Hollows that they would, in fact, be beneficiaries of because of his activities. And I could list uh, several other items which we'll touch on and, or cover later in the show. But before I do that, I, I just, in my gut, I cannot start this show without talking about the children on the border. Yeah. Um, it just it, it tears me up. For those of you who follow my tweets, and, and, and if you don't, I urge you to do so, because um, uh, I will be doing a better job of tweeting more often. On Father's Day, um, I, I did a tweet that uh, basically said that the moral issues associated with what's happening as a nation were so reprehensible that on Father's Day, I wanted to stop and, and, and talk about it. And, and talk about how this could not be so, how we, the people, cannot let this be so. I was um, pleased that even uh, uh, certainly Melania Trump took a position that was more favorable than her husband, although one could argue since he probably wrote it, what was the intention of it. But you can't mistake what Laura Bush did. Uh, Laura Bush had uh, very, very high ratings throughout the entire Bush presidency. Her, hers never dipped, even when George Bush's did. And um, she gave a very compelling, coached, and thoughtful argument to why people of goodwill of both parties must immediately stop this process. You know, if someone said to you, um, what did you do when you heard that the government that you, that represented you, uh, eliminated kids from their mothers and said they were going to send them to a shower, and then they didn't show up for six days, in some cases they still haven't shown up. And this has happened to thousands of children, probably I'm going to guess at least 2,500 by now. And those are not unaccompanied minors. Those are people who came in with parents who were ripped from their parents. To the extent that the argument now from the Trump administration is we need to do these wretched things because it will send a message so people won't come to our borders. I'm sorry. Even the United Nations has recognized that what we are doing as a nation is literally a violation of international human rights. We have become a perpetrator nation. And we cannot escape the significance of what that means to us individually. I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm shocked as, a, as an individual. Uh, I know I'm starting to take a number of steps personally to do what I can to try and turn this around. I'm extremely pleased and supportive of all those elected politicians and those running for office who've taken their cameras down to Texas to, and El Cajon, California, to show what caged children look like. And to say they're not cages, it's just a building with um, uh, 
what do they call that wire? Um, chicken wire, not chicken wire. It's, what do wire? they call it? Chain link. Chain. Oh, yeah. It's just, it's just a building separated by chain link fences. No, it looks like a dog kennel. It really does look like a cage that you would put an animal into. And in the case of well over 100 of these kids are under the age of four. And the federal government's not even allowed to change their diaper as far as we know. So this is a level of horrific immorality that requires no further statement. And every human being of goodwill of any political party, of any political persuasion, I believe, has a duty to do anything and everything they can to, uh, to, to, to really register your disapproval. And, 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 and I believe that the damage this will do to us as a people is going to last for a generation or two at least. And long after Trump is gone, assuming that we are permitted to have an election in 2020, and I make that with tongue-in-cheek statement, 53% of the Republicans as recently as two weeks ago said that if Trump called off the election in 2020, they would support it. That's horrific. But what's happening on the border in McAllen, Texas, to children is even worse. So it's one thing to be a nation that doesn't care enough to, to elect political leadership, appropriate political leadership. It's another thing to say that we're going to allow a man to stay in office as king, even though that job description doesn't exist under the U.S. Constitution. To say that you would let him cancel an election is to say you would let him be king, which is what he wants. That is horrific. That is crazy. That has damaging effects. But I'll go to the part of the show because this is about business and society. And I'll tell you that what's going on in McAllen, Texas, as painful as it is and as wrong as it is, and as emotionally raw as it is, and I'm grateful for the media for showing up to cover it with cameras, as wrong as it is, it's also economically profoundly stupid. We are now signaling to people that our country is out of control. And when you're a perpetrator nation and you're out of control, your economy goes off the rails and everybody gets hurt except the very wealthy at the very top. So we now know what we've been doing for the last year in the reign of Trump is we've been benefiting the top one or 2%. At best, the people in the middle have been going sideways. And we've been able to create an economy which has continued to coast forward despite the breaking influences, B-R-A-K-I-N-G, breaking influences that it sustained from the Trump administration, which I'm going to cover in a moment. Despite all of that, when you hollow out the people's emotional attachment to their nation, when you have 50% of the people of this country or more who now believe that we are a predator, that we're engaged in conduct that we haven't seen since World War II, and when we saw it in World War II, we said it was abhorrent. I'm not comparing Trump to Adolf Hitler. I don't think he rises as to that dignity of sophisticated evil. What I am saying, though, is that since World War II, it hasn't been okay to treat people like bargaining chips, which is what Trump's doing, so he can force the Democrats to pay for his wall. That's the new explanation from the administration as of the last few hours. This, we're doing this so that we'll send a message, don't come here. In other words, if we want to stop this horrific policy, we have to give Trump the money to build a wall, which everybody knows is a useless act, but the king wants a wall. And if we don't stop it, the explanation is from our own administration, we're using these children as captive bargaining chips, not only against the Democrats, but also as a way to send an inhumane warning to the rest of the world. Don't come here. We'll take your children from you. And, and I got to tell you, this is, and the damage it's going to do the kids, of course, is horrific. So I could not start today without saying, totally apart from the economy, I, I, my heart and my soul feels incredibly heavy today in this crisis. I believe I share that with more than half the people of this nation. And when you feel heavy of heart and you are dispirited, you do not produce economic gains you don't increase worker productivity, you start to go into shell shock. And I believe that this action, together with the ones I'm about to refer to, in the economy itself, which all are trending in the wrong direction right now, are going to cost us all, let alone the costs of all the personnel being used to incarcerate all these children and to incarcerate all of these individuals, almost all of whom, cross the border to beg for asylum. 
They didn't cross the border to rape, pillage, or assassinate anyone. They crossed the border asking for asylum, asking to be processed for asylum. And the vast, vast, vast majority have been told that they're going to be criminally prosecuted. And even the ones that aren't being criminally prosecuted have been separated from their children for six days or more. So I start this show by saying, you know, nothing could be more important than what I just enumerated. We must regain the heart and soul of this nation, which is what Laura Bush said, and I agree with her. And I believe that if we do that, we can really begin to rebuild the economy, which is now getting shattered in every direction. And if we don't do that, if we think we can whistle by the graveyard, if we can ignore this and everything's going to keep being hunky-dory in the economy, folks, it ain't so. And you better stop spending as much money as you're spending because you're going to need to save it. For those of you with very little disposable income, if you can cut the size of your order at McDonald's by 10%, if you can go to Starbucks one time less, do it. If you can go to one less movie, do it. Anything you could do to save some discretional income and start putting that discretional income into a savings account or in the repayment of debt because there is a hurricane about to hit our shores. And that recession is coming with a ferocity unlike anything we've seen, certainly since 2007, and I believe since before that. This will be as bad conceivably as what we went through in 2000, 2008, and we have fewer protections. So those are my thoughts about the horrific condition I find myself in today. And I wish I didn't even have to do the show because I'm so upset with what's going on in McAllen, Texas. But we do. We have to do the show. We have to be able to go forward and see how can people best protect themselves in the face of a, just a, a wall of bad data right now. So I guess that's where I would transition to, Matt, and I would say that um, um, we probably ought to talk about some of those very specific economic things yeah. Yeah, let's that talk are weighing about the that. economy down. Yeah, because you, you said something just now that I think is really interesting and important, um, aside from sharing your your view on the uh, child separation crisis, it was just, just a travesty. Um, you know, thinking back to when I was that age, being away from my parents uh, and institutionalized without understanding the language and you know, being having anyone to tell me what's going on sounds like torture to me. And I think that's what's happening to these kids. Um, but yes, moving on to the economy, Ronaldo. And yeah, with, you, with, by the yeah. way, with, with lifelong consequences. Absolutely. The, the president of the American, uh, it was the American Psychiatric uh, uh, Panel, the, uh, the American Association of Psychiatrists, Child Psychiatrists, I believe, was in McAllen and said these children will be damaged probably for life but if not for life, for an extremely long time. Yeah. These yeah. are terrible, terrible it's, it's, in, in it's our criminal. name, it's in criminal. our name, Matt, in our name. At some yeah. point, we've got to go to the streets because this is not right. And I'm really pleased that some elected legislators, not many, but a handful, hats off to Beto down in Texas, who's running against Ted Cruz, who's not pulling any punches on this issue, who's shown up on the front lines with the demonstrators, and who is trying to bring attention to something that's unbelievably wrong. I can't believe that in Texas, a red state, he's doing this because he thinks it will help his numbers. He's doing it because he's, like any politician should be, putting morality above electoral politics. Yeah, the, uh, and, and, and that's, that's what, that, that, just to, you know, to summarize, I, I, I do think that this is an overreach. I think that the reaction we're already seeing is significant and it will continue to be so. Um, I don't think that this is we we don't have the conditions for a Japanese intern style internment that was essentially the closest parallel in recent American history to this, but we'll we'll, we'll keep watching it closely and reporting well, and, back. And that's and by the way that's an, an excellent that's an excellent example because even in the Japanese style internment in Kobayashi versus the United States Kobayashi, uh, and, and and certainly the worst thing that is attributed to Franklin Delano Roosevelt was that policy. But even in that horrific policy, which left young Japanese males that were born in America with the choice of fighting and dying in Europe at an alarming percentage rates and not ever seeing their families or staying in the camp, even that horrific policy never separated families in the camps, ever. Yeah. And, 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 and what we are doing now with the unaccompanied minors, which are in the thousands, that are being housed in in prisons. Let's call these what they are. They're federal prisons. And, and even the, the Homeland Security Department actually runs them like prisons because they have no other authority. So 
So there's no health and human services version of prison. There's just one kind of prison. And they are, they are under incarceration. These children under the age of four in over 100 cases and between four and uh, 18 in all the other cases are being incarcerated in kid jails, in cages, for indefinite periods of time, may never, ever be repatriated to their parents, probably will get thrown at some point back to the country of origin, even if they never knew it when they left it. So I, I, I just, I don't know where to go with this. It's just, it's yeah. so frustrating, Matt. But even the Japanese were not separated in their, not that, that would excuse me. It's a, it's a very good point. Um, but let, let it, let's pivot to the economy now, Ronaldo. And I, I, something else you just said is really important, which is that you you see this, you foresee this being as bad, if not worse, than the what's called the Great Recession, which was not actually a depression, but was very close in this country, but had global de- depression impacts around the world. Um, tell me why you think this one's going to be as bad, if not worse. Because several things. First of all, we don't have the same um, set of breaks, B R A K E S, in the federal government that we had last time. So last time we had the ability to radically reduce interest rates to negative interest rates rates. We're so low in interest rates right now that if we were to knock them to zero, it wouldn't be that huge a change from where they are, even though they're going up by a quarter of a point and creating some inflationary effects. So you don't have the ability to, 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 to write unlimited checks anymore. We're no longer the stable global currency, reserve currency. That's a big one, Matt. In other words, what Trump has done to destroy the standing of the United States amongst its allies and other countries, we've created competitors to the American greenback for global currency, for global commerce. So the euro is a competitor now. The Chinese renminbi or yuan is definitely a, a competitor. One could argue that there, uh, there are other competitors that are arising as well. And then there's the entire field of cryptocurrencies which remember are completely opposite to the idea of fiat or faith currencies, currencies of the faith in the sovereign government. So that pressure is now on top of us. And those cryptocurrencies are not big enough to take over for all the fiat currencies. It can't, it can't, they can't replace the dollar and the yen and the, and, and the, and the Japanese, um, the Japanese yen, the, the, the Chinese renminbi or the euro. But what it can do is it can create additional complexity in trying to stabilize the situation when the nation state banks of the world try to solve this one the way they tried to solve it in 2007. That's one reason. Number yeah. two, deficits are, are spiraling totally out of control. Example, we were sold that tax cut wouldn't possibly create, worst case, a billion, a, a, a trillion and a half of additional deficit, but it was gonna actually produce a, a surplus. Even the Republicans have quietly admitted it's gonna be a trillion in deficit. The Democrats are saying, see, we are right. It's going to be a 1.5 trillion deficit because of the tax cuts. And that's wrong. It's going to be over $2 trillion. Mark your calendars, folks. You heard it here first. That deficit is going to be over $2 trillion as a direct result of the tax cut before the smoke clears. That's an enormous anchor on the economy. Now, on top of that, you're going into a global financial crisis. Again, remember the fiat currencies are all sovereign nations. And all the cyber currencies are the opposite. So when you're going into a crisis like this, the last thing you can afford is to have all of your friends become your enemies or not care what you do. And we've just done that. The G6 plus one, which now stands for plus the US, actually has to, had to walk away with one exception. There was one vote with Trump on not banning plastics, which surprised me came from Japan. But otherwise, it's the six plus one, the six voted consistently on every issue except for the United States. What the United States has done by turning Canada, our biggest ally, into an enemy is going to cause unbelievable complexity when this recession hits. By the way, just for the record books, are people aware that we ran a surplus with Canada, a trade surplus? Why does Trump say they beat us up with tariffs? Because he doesn't look at services, he only looks at hard goods. Hmm. Our country exports services massively. And when you compare the services we export to Canada, together with the trade goods we export to Canada, and vice versa, we actually send Canada more stuff than it sends us in dollars, in Canadian dollars and U.S. dollars. So we were profiting from the Canadian relationship because of NAFTA. I can make a case that we've been profiting under NAFTA with NATO as well. 
And let's just take NAFTA for a second. Under what stretch of the imagination does the current occupant of the Oval Office think that he has the authority to unilaterally cancel NAFTA? That's a treaty. That's not an executive order. That's a treaty. That was, that was affirmed by the Senate of the United States of America. And that cannot be changed unless the Senate changes it with a two-thirds vote because it's a treaty. In other words, you can amend a treaty with a two-thirds vote, but you can't do it unilaterally with the presidential stroke of a pen, which is what he's used to doing these days. Um, now, the yield... But, yeah. let, me, let me ask you this just on the same question. Uh, the, the last recession, the Great Recession, was triggered by a, a, a totally insane housing bubble, a bubble in the housing market, um, which led to a really rapid decline and the failure of a lot of big banks. That was not what, I mean, there are different triggers for different recessions, but that was a pretty abnormal recession in terms of, it wasn't a normal business cycle. It was a collapse of a massive bubble. Do you see any uh, anything that's similar here uh, in the situation we're in now that, that could trigger such a collapse? Well, first of all, um, I just want to look at the words business cycle, normal business cycle, you said. There's no such thing in my humble opinion. And I've been a student of business cycles since 1969, um, everything from the Kondratchev long wave cycle to short cycles. And I don't believe the business cycle theory of business holds up anymore. The theory at one point was that uh, you have periods of boom, you overproduce, you have too much capacity, too much production, prices fall because they get too cheap, there's a recession, cleans out the inventory, and then you start back up again. That's a classic business cycle. I don't think it's it's worked that way for years. I'll give you an example. In 2001, the recession of 2001 started because of a unbelievable uh, inflation of dot-com valuation. Remember that? Yeah. Dot-com bust. Right. Okay. 2007, it was the not just the housing bust, but what really busted was the financial system. See, it, it was that the financial markets packaged all these securities, these housing mortgages, which were bad, pretended they were AAA rated right. when they weren't, and they were using derivatives which is how they were able to securitize them. And so there was this massive $700 trillion derivative explosion that occurred, which Hazel Henderson and I talked about for well over a year before they blew up, explaining why they would blow up. And guess what's happening as we sit here today? Derivatives are being ramped up again. The banking reforms that were put into place were not that severe to begin with. They were minor. How do you know they were minor? Because the biggest banks got bigger and the little banks got put out of business. So they weren't that major. They did not, they did not deal with the banks that were too big to fail. Now, here's what's fascinating. Those are all being rolled back. The, the, the Dobbs is, is is being rolled back. Okay? Uh, Dodd-Frank, uh, yeah. Well, Dodd-Frank, but you're all, also um, the Volcker rules being rolled back, which tells you you can't use equity of – you can't use the deposits of your, invest, of, your, of your clients as a bank to play craps in the marketplace, to shoot craps, to, to, to play dice. That's going back up in smoke. So will that be at a, at a crisis point to catalyze or trigger this next recession? No, I don't think it will be. I think it'll be a compounding effect that when this recession has been fully triggered, what's going to happen is other things are going to trigger it, pushing it down faster and faster as it, as it heads south, including that we won't have allies to join together with us to, to, to put a break on it. And that's why I see the bottom is very, very dangerous. It's interesting. Last week, with all the hoopla about the North Korean summit, I know we'll talk about it later, notice the markets went down by 267 points. Didn't go up for the week. So you've got a market that we've been saying on this show for a long time has been stalled out. It can't go any higher. It can only go sideways or down. The market doesn't make money when it goes sideways. So it's going down. And what could trigger it this time? Well, a number of things. Let's start the yield curve. So on the last show, we talked about the fact that in 100% of the cases, when the yield curve goes to zero, you have a recession within six months, period. I'll explain why in a moment that's true, but that is true. Well, the yield curve, which was at 0.7 when I looked what, at it what before the last What is the yield curve show, again, Ronaldo? Okay, the yield curve is the amount of money that you get paid if you hold a six-month treasury bill, so very short-term bill, so the yield on that should be a lot less than a 10-year bill, which you have to hold for 10 years to get paid. So with a six-month treasury bill, you can get out pretty quick. So you tend to get less interest for that than you do for a 10-year bill where you're stuck for a long time. So if I say to you, hey, Matt, my friend, 
uh, would you loan me a buck for six months? You'd say, oh, sure, I'll charge you 5% Ronaldo if you're going to charge me interest. I go, well, you loan me that same buck for 10 years? I go, oh, well, yeah, 5% a year times 10. Yeah, I'll loan it to you for 50%. Because otherwise, you're not, you're not breaking even. You follow me? Inflation is going to eat up your value. So every, so every bond has a yield curve. Is that right? Yeah. And yeah. the ones and, you're and specifically so, talking about are the yield curves on 10-year t- uh, treasury bills? Yeah, every bond has a yield. And what I'm talking about when they call it, when you hear the expression yield curve, what they're talking about is the ratio, the curve of what kind of a yield you get from, say, a 10-year treasury today versus what you would have got two years ago. And what will you get for a six-month treasury today? And what's happening is the gap, the yield between 10-year treasuries and six-month treasuries, when I looked it up before the last show, it was 0.7 difference. Uh, at the day of the last show, it had already dropped to 0.5. Today, it's down to 0.3. So we're three-tenths of a, of a percent away from the yield curve crossing, which in 100% of the cases leads to recession within six months. Why does that happen in 100% of the cases? Because when it doesn't pay you more to make a longer-term investment of 10 years than one year, it means you have no confidence in the future. It means you think the future is going to be worse than today. And when the bond market feels that, which is what sets the yields, when the bond market feels that, they drop bonds like rocks. And when you drop bonds like rocks, you drop the basis of the international mechanism for financing debt of every form in sovereign nations. So we are in a situation now where the short-term yield is about to equal the long-term yield. That's what it's called, that's when the yield curve crosses. And at that point, you got a recession for sure in six months because the bond markets will go crazy. And the, and the stock market won't be able to pick up the pace for it. They won't be able to absorb all that. Now, one of the things that's kept the market growing, despite the insanity of the last year, is the fact that so many people keep adding more and more money to 401ks. And they don't know what to do with it. And their brokers keep investing it for them in the market and say, don't worry, if the market crashes, it'll come back before you need the money. Well, that's not necessarily true. And anybody listening to me today if you're willing to take a 25 to 30% loss of your nest egg, fine, stay in the stock market. I'm not in the market, and I don't think you should be, because I'm going to wait till that 25 or 30% comes down, and then I'm going to buy back into the market at a more reasonable level. And that's what I urge all of our listeners to do. But that yield curve is a huge, huge issue. Now let's go to tariffs. Not only are you handcuffing yourself when it comes to how you can readjust the global economy once the recession starts to kick in, because your allies are now, the powerful allies of the Western industrial nations are no longer unified behind you. In fact, they're unified against you. And more than one of them would like to see you fail, frankly. I think that Macron of of France, I believe Merkel of Germany, and even May of England would love to see Trump fail because he's become an international bully. He's not just an American bully in America, he's an international bully. And since they would prefer to see us fail, the ability of organizing them to common purpose when the recession starts to kick in won't be there, which means the recession will tighten in on itself. It will spiral. Now that leads us to the tariffs. On top of that negative political issue, which causes economic effect, the tariffs are gonna cost tens and tens of thousands of jobs. So I've already reported that Canada, we had a trade surplus. That's going to go away. So is Canada going to get hurt? You bet. They're our little brother over across the border, and they only got, what, 38, 40 million people at most. We got 375 million people. Uh, They're going to get hurt worse than we are, probably, if it's just them and us. However, we're going to get hurt, too. Lumber's already gone up dramatically. Canadian lumber is what feeds our housing market. Uh, we, We for sure are going to have problems with automobiles up there. We're going to for sure have problems with other exports and particularly our services, which we make the most money on, are all going to get impacted with adverse. China. China's already, they, we, we put a $50 billion tariff on on a Saturday. I don't think people, I don't, I don't know if, if Trump was watching and expecting that because there was other news, he could slide it in there. The same day, China came back and said, here's $50 billion of tariffs against you. Now, Trump's saying, well, I'm going to raise the tariffs. China said, do it, and we'll do it. By the way, China's also taken off the table the agreement to buy, what was it, $75 billion worth of American stuff um, if he backed off these tariff issues, which he didn't. So now that deal's off the table. Um, How many 
hundreds of new factories have been built in the last year of the Trump administration. If there's one or two, that's about it. We know there haven't been thousands and thousands and thousands of new coal miner jobs. So none of the things that we thought or were told would benefit us as a nation are. And in fact, what we seem to do under the Trump administration is we are trading historical legacy industries, which are tough to compete with when you have well-paid people, i.e. steel, with the industries of the future, services, computers, software, et cetera. So we're, we're, we're doing exactly the wrong thing at exactly the wrong time. And that's going to cause the recession to be tougher. Next, I touched on worker productivity. People don't work harder and smarter if they're depressed and if they feel guilty about the country they live in. You can't put this kind of a, a divisive polarization into effect, which Trump has been doing for political purposes, and not have a negative economic impact. Um, so, it, so because worker productivity won't go up, which it hasn't and won't, that means wages are probably not going to go up. And wages haven't gone up. And we know inflation's already started. The Fed's already telegraphed they're raising rates to deal with inflation. Well, if you don't have workers' wages going up at least equal to or greater than inflation, what do you got? You've got the wage earner paying for that tax deduction the billionaire got under Trump's tax bill, under the tax cut. Someone's got to pay for that. We were sold that it was going to pay for itself with new economic activity. That has not happened and will not happen. So who pays for it? The working staff. So Ronaldo, it sounds to me like that, just to back up for one second, the tariffs could be a really powerful uh, catalyst for a recession. Oh, there's no question. That, that could there, be there the are... thing that tips the balance and could be way worse because a well, protectionist regime, would, a global protectionism would, could be very destabilizing to the entire global economy. Absolutely. In fact, that's what most conventional economists are saying. And by the way, I want to touch on conventional economists and I want to touch on Larry Kudrow. So the... the the president's chief economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, who's basically a Fox television personality, has been wrong so often, I couldn't find one major economic call he's made that was right since before 2001. Why is that? Because he's an unreconstructed Laffler curve guy. So the Laffler curve says, in effect, if you give lots more money to the rich, it'll trickle down to the poor. So it's called trickle down economics. It was stupid. It never made sense. Didn't work for Laffler. And it doesn't work for Kudlow. And because of that, he constantly, because he believes it, he constantly misreads the, stat, the, the data. He misread the 2001 boom, uh, bust in the, in the um, tech stocks. He said in 2007 there was no housing bubble and that everything was going to be just fine and not to worry about derivatives. He said that the Bush tax cuts were going to create great economic surplus that we'd never have to pay for them. Of course, we recognize they led to the largest deficits until Trump of any presidency, okay? He said you can have guns and butter, you can have a war in Iraq and not have to pay for it with reduced spending domestically, and everybody knows our bridges are broken and our highways are not paved properly, and we haven't been educate we haven't been investing in education. We've been stripping the guts out of our domestic economy for years now, and that economy is not as resilient anymore, which is why when the recession starts, it's going to get tougher not only to get out of it, but it's going to be tougher to slow it down once it starts. Now. If we're lucky, and Germany, France, England, Japan, and all the other civilized nations in the industrial economy decide that they're going to work together despite Trump, that'll give us more room to maneuver, but still going to be a heck of a recession. Um, and let me touch on one. Why aren't more men working? I jokingly brought that up a little while ago. Statistically, it turns out, if you look since 1950, men are working less today and looking for jobs less today than they were in 1950. So example, in 1950, in the prime demographic for working men, which is men aged, I think it's 25 to 54, in 1950, only 4% of those prime age men were not working or looking for work. Today, that figure is almost 300% higher. It's a little over 11%. Why are those men not working? One of the answers, I think, is we've been at war for so long now. People think of how horrific, how horrific World War II was, but it was over pretty quick. We've been at war for more than a decade now with no end in sight. 
We've shipped back tens and tens and tens and tens and tens and tens of thousands of soldiers who have been seriously hurt, PTSD or physical limbs and injuries, et cetera. So we have a massive number of people in our uh, VA system, even more veterans who can't get properly treated. Uh, we have an ep opioid epidemic right now, which is keeping more people from looking for work or, or being employed. We have so many social ills happening simultaneously that it's taking men literally out of the job market. So if you were to add that 11% or even the 8% that it's increased since 1950 back in to people looking for work, uh, well, the unemployment rate would be nowhere near 3.8%. It'd be well north of 5 or 6, 5%. So, so we, we've got a, a serious challenge here that is keeping us from fixing our fundamental problems. Why are wages not higher? Productivity hasn't gone up. And the money to increase productivity, which would typically go into training, education, uh, automation, et cetera, didn't get sent to the marketplace. We were told that the trickle-down impact of the tax cuts is that the workers would be getting all these bonuses. And for those of you who follow it, the evidence is now overwhelming that the vast majority of all the tax benefits that corporations got went to high-paid executives, shareholders in the form of stock buybacks or dividends. And a small portion went to workers, very small. And there's a very comprehensive study of that, which the business community totally accepts, that Just Capital produced only a month ago, which actually gives all the numbers. Uh, same thing with the repatriation of foreign earnings. We were told that would come back into the country, that trillion dollars, and we'll give them tax breaks because they shouldn't have kept it out of the country in the first place. And they'll end up using that to build tons more factories and bring more jobs and blah, 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 none of which happened. And workers will get richer with more wages. That's not happening. So it's time to wake up and smell the coffee, America. We have got ourselves a series of problems, and we have got to tackle them with a really clear, cold eye. We've got to look at them not as a filter of what's my political belief. Do I hate Trump? Do I like Trump? Uh, do I believe in progressive policies? Do I believe in conservative policies? Forget all that. Just as steely-eyed Americans, pragmatists that we are, we've got to say these policies, whether it's trade deficits, whether it's the fact that we've maimed two generations of, or certainly one generation of males, uh, whether it's because uh, the uh, yield curve is coming close to touching. All of these issues together is clear, steely-eyed Americans, pragmatists. We have to say, oops, we got a problem coming. How can we minimize that recession if it isn't even possible to prevent it? And it might still be preventable with the right policies, but I don't see the right policies coming. So if we can't prevent it, can we can we reduce its negative impact? How can we reset our course so that it would be a shallow dip if it is one and look more like an inventory business cycle, for example? So those are the issues I think that people need to know about today. We've been talking for months. Get out of the market. If you're not out, you should have been by now. Um, I guess the, uh, uh, the best way to focus everybody on this is to talk about how you individually are going to take care of your nest egg, given the uncertainty of the equity markets, the yield curve collapsing, and tariffs at our door now stalking us with inflation and deficits bigger than anyone ever told you were coming. All of those things together, put them in a package, and now put them in an oven called climate change to bake that package, and you see the potential for why this recession could be so big. And Ronaldo, on that front, so it, it is hard to give advice, you know, for that for everyone listening. But basically, getting out of the market, you know, what does that look like? What would you go go to? Short term uh, bonds, or I mean, money market. Uh, I think you could go to money market um, because, as we've already seen, the dollar has appreciated against the Canadian dollar. The Canadian dollar's gone from eighty cents, seventy nine cents, down to seventy seven. You see continuing pressure on the euro. I think that will increase in the short term. Uh, so being in dollars for the short term might be just fine. Um, as you know, I've always had a, a preference for gold, uh, meaning that it should be part of our portfolio. I've been talking about that a lot since last October, and uh, I believe that's still true. I think that the component of gold uh, in the um, in your portfolio should be at least 15 conceivably 20%. Uh, 
Um, I think there are other ways to uh, protect yourself. Uh, and I mean, if people want specific suggestions, write in and ask me questions. Like if you, for example, have a mortgage that can be refinanced now instead of waiting, in a, in, particularly if it's a variable rate mortgage, immediately go get it refinanced. Even if it costs you a few bucks out of your savings in the short term, it'll save you a ton of money in the long term. Be your best investment. Um, if you have a um, ability to uh, to pay down credit card debt because you save, say, 10% of your disposable income and you put it towards debt reduction for savings, you're going to be better off with that money locked up in a money market than spending it on any new consumption at a time when you, as they say in the in the sailing world, batten down the hatches, the storm's coming. So uh, I think that's really where people need to be looking. Um, I also think that, you know, just to put the opposite fiction out there, I want people to remember, we're the same people, all this negative stuff you've just heard from me. We're the same people who publish a free service called Optimist Daily that we want you to read because we want you to have something positive to look at when all this negative information is hitting you. And I believe that when the recession comes, that service is going to be even more important. Because it is those of us who can think a positive thought in the midst of this amount of chaos, that's how we're going to collectively get ourselves out of this mess. So as hard as it is in my gut to think past those children in McAllen, Texas, in the morning when I look at my Optimus Daily, it takes me about two minutes to do, I go, okay, a little, corner, a little smile forms in the corner of my mouth. I go, okay, yeah, okay, I got to remember that too. I got to remember that too. Because if I can remember that, at the same time I'm prepared to take my own warnings, like Paul Revere, I do believe the British are coming. So the recession is coming. How do I prepare myself for it financially? And how do I prepare myself for it mentally? And mentally, you want to prepare for it by starting to put more and more optimistic stuff in your head, because one way or the other, I believe we will get through this. And when we do, as we get through it, um, we'll be glad that all those things that we read that were optimistic balanced out all the terrible things we had to consider so that we don't run around like crazy people tearing our head out, their hair out, going, oh, my God, this guy's falling, this guy's falling. It's pretty bad. But we've got to look at it every day with an optimistic eye and then rebuild from there. So please take a free subscription to Optimist Daily. All you got to do is write info at worldbusiness.org and we'll sign you up. We'd love to do it. And we're certain you'd enjoy it. Um, I don't know if um, uh, your experience of it, Matt, but I know for myself, when I pick up a story in Optimist Daily, it really, really, really helps me deal with the issues. Yeah, it's good. To, it's good to track the progress we're making. That doesn't necessarily make the headlines. I mean, that's one of the big uh, challenges these days with s some of the serious crises and potential crises, and mostly a reality television show that has become the U.S. government. It, it sucks up all the oxygen, and you forget to learn about the things that are actually working, uh, the progress that we're making on a lot of fronts. You know, you and I share a real concern for climate change, um, and very clearly focused on that, but this the optimist daily often has good news even about climate change not necessarily that we're bending the curve yet in terms of our uh, approach on climate change but actual uh, ways to mitigate and uh, adapt to climate change reality so i, I find that useful on, on a regular basis i read it probably three times a week or more yeah and i i'll come back to climate change in a second because i think that's really a great point but for example even in this morning's optimist daily I don't know how many of you people have been following what's going on in Afghanistan. Most people don't. Most people think of Afghanistan as this intractable mess that we got into 10 years ago or more, and we, and we, we still can't get clear. Um, you know, in, in, in the past two years alone, more than 835,000 Afghanis fled their country for Pakistan because of the Civil War and, that are now returning to their homes. And what what, what, there's a march going on that was reported just today of men who started walking from a village, different, all kinds of age. Some are blind from war injuries. Some are young people. Some are older people. Some were ex-Taliban. Some are ex-Kabul you know, people. And what they're doing is they're walking to Kabul, and, the, the, and, the, and there's more people gathering with them as they walk to say, we've had enough of this war. These are the Afghani people saying they've had enough of war. And what appears to be happening is that there is now a minor movement in Afghanistan 
as the foreign powers start to pull back, all of what they have sustained in the way of damages, destruction, and death, they're trying to work it out. I don't know if they can pull it off. The Taliban seems resurgent to me. But it gave me a little smile to read these two articles, uh, one in Optimist Daily and one in the New York Times, on the same subject within a week of each other. And I go, okay, this is not just my wishful thinking. It's actually good news that's happening. People are trying to get their problems behind them, even in a country as intractably crazy as Afghanistan has been from a point of view of death and destruction. So that's why we do the, the Optimist Daily. And, uh, as, as this, and as far as um, if you look at the uh, uh, sustainability solutions that, that are coming, bubbling to the surface literally almost every day, uh, there's a, we've, we've perfected the art now of capturing water in deserts from overnight moisture, and it's working. The technology is working to bring life-saving water to areas that are basically completely run out. Um, it's, it, it's, it's important to know we can do this because as we, get, we go through this next economic ringer, I want people to come out with a view of the society we can create rather than the one that has happened to us along the way. That's the purpose of Optimist Daily. Let's remember, our job is not to bitch and moan just about what's happening, but then to go through it with a view towards the world we want to create rather than the world that's been handed to us. With that, Ronaldo, do you want to talk a little bit about climate change? I really do, for two reasons. Last week, um, and as everybody knows, I think, on the call, we've been doing climate change work, very advanced climate change work at the Academy for about 12 years now, uh, which was triggered out of some conversations I had with the, the head of the IPCC for Japan and the U.S., uh, Professor Lawrence Begard, in which he urged us to continue on and explore these issues because he felt that a business group could do a better job of um, articulating the truth of where we were headed than an academic group because academics, A, are more conservative, B, it takes two-thirds agreement to get anything done, and C, they're only looking at the past, they're not looking at the present and the future. We in the academy are looking at the future first at the, and then considering it against the, the present. And then we look at the past to see how fast or, not, or slow it's accelerating. We also use what we call a term I created called the methane accelerator analysis on top of CO2, which has proven to be a far more accurate gauge of what would happen. Now, in an article that just occurred in the New York Times on Wednesday of last week, they reported, which is correct, that Antarctica, the ice mass in Antarctica, is melting much, much faster than anybody had ever predicted, including the IPCC. Not faster than the Academy predicted, but much faster than conventional uh, climate change people had. And the problem is they said, gee, at the rate it's going, we now believe instead of just uh, maybe an inch by 2100, we could have as much as six inches or even perhaps six feet by 2100 of sea level rise. Hot tip, not on a good day, you're going to see only six feet. I can't tell you whether it's 60 feet or more. But I can tell you, it's way, way more than six feet. And when you look at that, compared to where the vast majority of the population lives, um, as that very famous physicist uh, in New York, uh, the, the real popular guy that's always on the TV shows, and I'm trying to remember his name now. I can't can't recall it. Um, Bill McKibben? No, no, the New York Planetarium guy. Oh, uh, oh yeah. Uh, you know who I mean. Anyway, he as he uh, as he is wont to say. Uh, with climate change, you can't um, you, you you can't evaluate uh, the degree of displacement that occurs unless you understand how close to the level of the ocean we live. So climate change is going to hit us two ways. Not only is the Antarctic ice sheet melting quickly, which it is much faster, and it's accelerating. So it's not melting at the same rate today as it was even three to five years ago. It's going much faster. Same is true with the Greenland ice sheet, which they note in passing in the New York, New York Times. Okay, that's accelerating. But as you see this acceleration, and you also have a heating of the ocean water itself, which expands it, I believe you will have more than six feet of sea level rise by 2050, not 2100. That is massive because, as and I'm trying to remember his name, but I can't right now. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Like, you cannot move Beijing uphill. You can't move London uphill. 
You can't move Los Angeles up. You can't move New York uphill. So what happens in a world with that much water where 75% of the world's population lives? And the answer is chaos. Physical chaos. Not just economic chaos. Physical chaos. Like people dying chaos. So um, the idea of Optimus Daily is for you to track those things that are working, that are helping us hold back the worst excesses of climate change and give you some optimism about what could happen if we put our minds to it. And then you can listen to this show as well to balance that with the reality of what's happening today that we can't ignore like ostriches with our head in the sand. So climate change, not only is the Antarctic melting faster, not only is the, um, are, we, are we now uh, going much faster in Greenland, in several ways that you know we've talked about on the show, the amount of water coming out from underneath the Greenland ice sheet is causing the, th the sheet to thin, not only decrease in size. So you've got these huge things. And in India, they are now suffering probably one of the worst droughts in the history of the nation. I predict within a couple of years they will call it the worst drought. You've got areas of China that are going to be massively destabilized because of drought issues. So, you know, and as this starts to unfold, People are going to start getting, they're going to be pushing on each other in a way that's very aggressive. And my belief is when you cause the pressure and the heat on individuals to rise, when the economy is dropping, often what you get is bloodshed. And that's my biggest concern for the moment. Whether or not we will be able to hang together as a society with moat increased bloodshed in the United States and whether or not we'll be able to reduce the amount of bloodshed overseas because it's massive and climate change is going to continue to create those pressures, including the swamping of Europe by hordes of people trying to get in from Africa and the Middle East. So those are the climate change comments. And McDonald's stopped using plastic straws. <laughs> <laughs> You gotta bounce it off. Scotland's gonna is, is subsidizing electric bicycles so they can, you know, uh, become sustainable for internal country travel. You know, keep going. There's all these different things. Yeah, and and one thing that people do want to keep in mind while they're dealing with the the deep and extremely dark potential realities of a climate changed future is that while we are behind the curve in terms of the changes we need to make, we're not completely. Uh, we're not locked into to the the bleakest future. There's nope. adaptation strategies, and there's ways to slow this down, and there's actually ways to cool the planet. All of which we'll be pivoting to. It's just a question of how quick. So, yeah, stay okay, in the it, fight and and stay, stay engaged the, because you can actually make a difference. Yes, you, in fact, it's only you who can make a difference. That's the thing to remember. It's not that you can make a difference. Only you can make a difference. Nobody can make that difference but you. Um, by the way, I want to also, while we're on this subject, and how many minutes we got left from this broadcast, Matt? Seven. Okay. Um, I'd like to segue to, um, and then if people want to talk about the Iran deal, which I think has massive economic consequences that are negative, I think that the Korean deal is all show and no go. Um, that's another story. Better that they're, they're talking and doing photo ops with each other than hurling insults at each other. But I don't see anything that came out of that um, summit that I can really get excited about. And, you know, if Trump thought it would increase his ratings. I'm afraid he would go back to a, to a more bellicose uh, position. But what I want to pivot to is the business community. Now, we ran a story in Optimus Daily on June 15th about what has happened with Just Capital. Now, for those of you who don't recall, in 2012, the Chopra Foundation, which at that time I was chairman of their executive committee on their board, uh, and the World Business Academy, which of course is who we still are, we jointly ventured to create a thing called Just Capital. Eventually, we split that off as a separate nonprofit, which is now based in New York. Uh, Paul Tudor Jones serves as the chairman of. Uh, and the board of Just Capital, we have a great board. Uh, I'm on it, and, and I wear many hats on that board. Uh, Paul is the chairman of it. Martin Whitaker is our incredibly talented CEO. We spend about $7.5 million a year on data. I'll explain why in a second. Uh, and we recently, on June 15th, we rang the bell at the New York Stock Exchange. What happened was uh, Goldman Sachs, who to me, and I always wanted Goldman to be the one to do this, 
I wanted to be able to have us convince Goldman Sachs, because Goldman Sachs stands for Wall Street. There are other powerhouse firms on Wall Street, J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, you know, there are a number of very powerful firms on uh, Morgan Stanley, on Wall Street, Bank of America. But if you really say to yourself, who stands for a century as the beacon of Wall Street, it would be Goldman Sachs. Who stands for the principle, we will make money come you know, year in and year out? Goldman Sachs. Who stands for the principle of unfettered market uh, exuberance? Goldman Sachs. Now, Goldman Sachs, on its own nickel, took public and as of the 15th of June, registered on the New York Stock Exchange, the Just Capital Index. And what they did is they took the data we create in Just Capital and they turned it into an ETF, an exchange traded fund, meaning they took our data of who the 500 best companies that do good, quote unquote, and we find how they do good in seven categories. And then we wait and we publish the results so the whole world can see it. We even publish our methodologies so the whole world can see it. And what we say is these companies are doing better in all these different categories. And we rank them from one to roughly a thousand. The top 500 of those companies equal exactly in number the S&P 500. And we said to Goldman Sachs, which they have since repeated, we believe that the data there, we've identified the companies that are doing good by the American people's definition of good, are going to outperform the marketplace. If you look at how long we've been issuing the data since uh, for the last two plus years, almost three years now, we are, uh, we are outperforming the market. We're outperforming the S&P 500, even in a period of time when the S&P 500 grew quite strongly. And uh, we outperformed it, I believe, by uh, over 3%. Now, Past performance is no indication of future performance. We always say that with securities. But at the same time, what it means is that Goldman Sachs, with its own research, decided that it made money at this point, made more money to invest in companies that do good, quote unquote, than in the general marketplace. That's huge. So what does do good mean? Well, do good means that the companies that finished highest on our ranking were companies that had the fairest wage policies, livable wage policies, had the fairest uh, employee policies, had uh, the best policies with regard to the environment, had the best policies with regard to the uh, society at large, the communities in which they operate. And what's fascinating is these companies are not like angels. These aren't like, you know, extraordinarily, you know, unique, unusual companies. These are standard large multinational large cap companies for the most part who believe well for the most not completely all large cap who believe that they can do the right thing and that that will actually make them more money in the short run and the long run that's amazing that's truly truly amazing and that the goldman sachs folks took this to the public and said we're going to put we're going to stand behind the principle that companies do good are going to do better for your investment portfolio. And how we came up with what does do good mean is we surveyed 74,000 Americans. And we said, what would you like to have? What would you like to have if you could get corporate behavior to be just? What would that look like to you? And that's what they answered. And those are our criteria. So based on the criteria of those 74,000 interviews, we then rank the companies. So I'm proud of that. Now, why am I raising it here today? Because, as it turns out, I think and always have 30 years that business has to be the solution we're looking for. I've said that politics cannot change fast enough, and the pressure of speed of change is causing our political institutions crack. Matt, you've been hearing that from me how long now? Because I've known you, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so that's not a new... Nine or so. Yeah, and I've been saying it since 1986. So my point is, academe can't get us out of this mess because it's about looking at the past and trying to figure out what the future is going to be when the past has almost no relationship to the future. Political institutions cannot keep up with the speed of change. The only institution in society that can keep up with the speed of change, if there's anyone that can, is business. And therefore, business must proactively take the role of leadership. And it needs to do it now. Business got a lot out of the Trump administration with the tax benefits. It got a lot out with the repatriation. But now it's at risk of losing all of its gains and then some. 
if it doesn't start leading the American people in a more productive way. How do they lead? Well, look what Howard Schultz did when two black men were totally inappropriately uh, arrested in Philadelphia. He didn't put up some blue ribbon commission and sweep it under the rug for six months. Within 24 hours, he said, that's wrong, we're gonna change it. Within another 24 hours, he said, I'm gonna take every shop in America and close them down on May 29th, including the corporate headquarters, and we're gonna talk about implicit bias and find out why we're doing this so we stop doing this to our customers. And they've also gone even further and said from now on, our bathrooms are open to anybody, period. So we won't have the possibility of making this. And I think the restaurants themselves, not just bathrooms. Yeah. The Starbucks themselves, people can come in right. without being a customer. That's right. So that's leadership. That's real leadership. And that's what we do at Just Capitals. We try to find those real leaders and the companies they're leading. And we try to encourage them to go out there and take public stances on behalf of policies which we know will benefit the society as a whole. It's time for the Chamber of Commerce to stop being a bunch of uh, cheerleaders for conventional business and start to be the thinky, thoughtful, capable place it needs to be for the business institutions in our society to begin to change us in ways that are more acceptable to our values. I can assure you there is no business that wants to be identified with what's going on in McAllen, Texas. I can assure you of that. And I can assure you that no business would permit their identification that for even an instant. So if that's what we need, is we need the courage of leadership, I'm hoping that business will increasingly step up and provide it, because I don't see it coming from the political company. And that's my, my thought. Ronaldo, I think we can close with that. I really appreciate it. And it's uh, always good to talk to you and do these calls. And I hope our audience is finding them useful also. They can reach us at info at worldbusiness.org. Again, that's I-N-F-O at worldbusiness.org. And with that, Ronaldo, thank you very much. Great. Well, thank you, Matt. And thank you to all of our listeners. And we'll see you hear from us again in a month. Take care. All the best.